Open your Bibles, please, to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32. We will come to our text uh, in a bit. In Psalm 99.1, we read, The Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim, let the earth shake. We've been examining the matter of the fear of the Lord. But it may be that verses like Psalm 99.1 make us wonder, why does God want the nations to tremble or the earth to shake? Why is the fear of the Lord such a big deal? Why is it so important? Thus far in our studies, we have seen that the fear of the Lord is found throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, that the fear of the Lord includes or involves both the fear of dread and terror, as well as the fear of veneration, reverence, and awe. And then last week we saw that the fear of the Lord should have the following ingredients, a correct concept of the character of God, a sense of the presence of God, and a constant awareness of our obligations to God. And among these obligations, as we saw last week, we are to love him supremely, to obey him implicitly, and to trust him completely. One might say, Damon, that, that's all well and good, but there still remains the basic question, why does God want people to fear him? After all, many, and that might include us, would suggest if I were God, I wouldn't want people to be afraid of me. It almost seems somewhat small of someone to expect and even demand that people fear him or her. I mean, shouldn't God be secure enough in who he is that he doesn't need people to fear him? I suspect that there are a number of factors behind this way of thinking that the fear of the Lord is somewhat decadent or self-indulgent on the part of God. And I think where we need to begin is we need to think about what it would mean to be God. If I were God, now who is God? And if I were God, what would that mean? What are the attributes, the characteristics of God? We saw this last week, that he is the all-powerful creator. He is the reigning king of creation. He is majestic and praiseworthy. He is holy. He is just. We saw of his wrath, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his eternality, his love, which is incomprehensible, his mercy, which is without measure, his compassion, his fatherly tenderness. This is what it means to be God. Now let's tie this in with what it means to be human. As humans, we are creatures. We bear the image of the Creator. So there is a connection. This isn't uh, this, a total disconnect. We are made in the image of God. But we are finite. That is, we live in a particular place and time. Uh, we're not omniscient. We don't know everything. We're not omnipresent. We're not everywhere at the same time. Um, as a result, our thinking is, in fact, limited because our knowledge is limited. More than that, we are profoundly flawed. And the flaws of our age, I think, are seen particularly in radical egalitarianism. And I think this is why there is this, this niggling thing in, in our mind. Why does God want us to be afraid of him? Um, particularly as Americans in this century, we think everyone is, should be equal in all ways. There should be no social hierarchies of any sort, no hierarchies of any kind whatsoever. And so in this light, it is offensive to imagine that there is someone who is higher than us and this person requires of us that we fear him. 
So let me ask you, if you were God, would you want to be feared? You might say no. Would you want to be respected? If you answer yes, then we are talking about the fear of the Lord in terms of respect and reverence. Would you want there to be in your creation a distinction between right and wrong? Would you want there to be consequences if somebody did something wrong, particularly something that's just grievous, some some horrible wrong thing? Should there be consequences? Would you want to be holy and retain the quality of holiness? Which would mean, by the way, that you are always right. Would you want to remain majestic? Would you want to be praised? Some of these we might be shaky on, but would you want to be loving, omniscient, and omnipotent? I argue that if you answer yes to any of these questions, then that would require a measure of fear. I think what the bottom line is for many of us is we want to have the freedom not to be afraid of God. We don't, if we want to fear God, if we want to have the fear of the Lord, that's fine. But we want to have the freedom not to have to do that. The obligation rubs us the wrong way. The reality is, as creatures, we are afraid of certain things. We will and we do fear certain things. And as one writer put it, the first effect of not believing in God is to believe in anything. And I would argue that the first effect of not fearing God means that we will fear almost anything else. I would encourage you, what we've looked at in the first three weeks of this study, um, to consider it and, and recognize how counterintuitive it is in today's world. Today I want us to consider the source of the fear of the Lord. It is not enough to know that we are to have the fear of the Lord. We must know where to get it. be two points primarily in the sermon today. The first is that the fear of the Lord is a blessing that is promised in terms of the new covenant. It is a promised blessing of the new covenant. God's dealing with human beings throughout history has been based on covenants. We've seen this in the past, and it would be a whole new series for us just to give the background for that. I'll just mention several things here to help us unpack it. Beginning with Adam, and then continuing with Noah, and then Abraham, Israel, David, we find that God deals with his people in terms of covenant. And we find the following features in all the covenants. First of all, God takes initiative. It is not as though someone goes to God and says, I want to make an agreement, I want to make a covenant with you. It is always God who comes to someone and who says, I will make a covenant with you. By the way, you may be wondering, the the covenant with Adam, the language is not that of covenant, but God tells Adam, this is what you're supposed to do, and if you don't, If you do this, what you're not supposed to, then there will be consequences. The language is that of covenant. So, God takes initiative. Secondly, in initiating the covenant, God makes promises. Because he is the one who says, here, I want to enter into a relationship with you. He is the one who says, these are the promises I make in terms of the covenant. God is free. God is not bound. He doesn't have to do this. He chooses to bind himself by his own word, um, by his character, his name. By myself I have sworn, we find in scripture, God makes promises. 
Then lastly, we find that there is to be human response. This isn't simply God doing everything. We are, in fact, to respond as we enter into covenant with him. Set that aside for a moment. Maybe this will make it clear. We are the people of the new covenant. We are in relationship with God by the new covenant. In fact, we just heard the words a few, moment, a few moments ago. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. In the doxology near the end of the book of Hebrews, we find, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, who, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything for doing his will. In other words, God is the one who made this eternal covenant and he has given us the ability to do what we should in terms of the covenant. Earlier in the book of Hebrews in chapter 8, but the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, the old covenant, and is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. We are the people of this new covenant. What does this mean? What are the benefits? What are the requirements? What is involved? Now we come to our text, which is found in Jeremiah chapter 32. And if you will, look at verses 38, 39, and 40. They will be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action, so that they will always fear me for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. And I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. For those of you who use the ESV, the English Standard Version, it says, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts. In verse number 40. In these verses, God is promising mercy to his people in the new covenant. How? By putting the fear, his fear in their hearts, thus securing their perseverance, their persistence in his ways. Did you catch what was said in verse number 40? I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. The Old Testament is a record of God's people turning away from them. He entered into covenant with them, and yet they turned away from them. It resulted in a generation dying in the wilderness and not being able to enter the promised land. It resulted in the northern kingdom first, and then a hundred years later, the southern kingdom, Judah, going into exile. The promises of the new covenant, as Jeremiah foresees it, are certainly something to be welcomed. 
But what was intended as a blessing, I think in this day and age, we might in fact see as a burden, if not a curse, and that is to fear God, the fear of the Lord. When we consider the new covenant, the fear of the Lord is one of the blessings conveyed. And you will see that it is a distinctly, we've talked about the covenant that God does this. He says, I will put the fear of me in their hearts. It should be clear to us that God is the one who is in fact doing this. It's not a surface thing. It's something that God will put in our hearts. To what end? So that we will not turn away from him. Let's be clear. Apart from the fear of the Lord, we would turn away from God who made us and who sustains us. So this is the new covenant. They will be my people. I will be their God. God will give to his people a singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear him. It is an everlasting covenant and he will put the fear of himself in our hearts. So the source of the fear of the Lord for us today is the new covenant. We are God's people. We are his children. The question then is, how does this happen? And here we come to our second point. It is, in fact, the work of God in our heart. If we are the people of the new covenant, we are to have the fear of the Lord, which he's placed in our hearts. But how does this happen? Does he somehow create this disposition, this temperament, and then sort of plunk it down in our hearts? I would argue that's not what he does. He could if he wanted, but in fact he does not. When God works in our lives, he does not go around our will, or our minds, or our affections. There are times we wish that he would. And I think there are times when we pray for other people, who may not be walking as they should, may not be living as they should, that maybe we go beyond temptation, but we are certainly tempted to say, God, straighten this person out. That is, forget their will, forget what they're thinking, their affections, just change them uh, by a sovereign act of God. But for the most part, that's not how God works. He does not go around us to get something done. He works within us, behind us, around us, through us. He works through our wills and in our affections and through our minds. So much so that oftentimes it is hard for us to distinguish or to discern, is this God working in my life? Or am I in fact making progress in my Christian life? Is this God's working or my working. Do you remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus about the working of the Spirit? The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is, in fact, mysterious. We find this in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So, you might say, Damon, okay, is it God working in my heart, or is it my working out my salvation with fear and trembling? The answer is yes. Yes. 
you see, when God works in us, we're not merely puppets at the end of strings, that he's somehow pulling our strings. And we are not simply to wait for God to do something to us. We're just sitting there waiting for God to do a work on us. God, in fact, is working in us through our minds, our affections, and our wills, but we are also to be at work. So as Paul told the Philippians, you are to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It is God who is working in you. God works beneath the conscious level. And his working is discovered when our wills are found to actively choose to do what is pleasing in his eyes. When we choose to do what is right, here you are today. It is the Lord's day. We've come together to worship God. We may not be conscious of it, but it is in fact God working in us to will and to do. This is one reason, by the way, why we cannot or we should not be filled with pride. Look at me. Look at what I've done. I've gone to church on this Sunday. We need to recognize that as the people of the new covenant, God is working in us, through us. And we are to choose to do what is right, but it is because God is working through us. Involved in this are a number of things. First of all, God owns us and we own him. Our text begins, they will be my people and I will be their God. Living when and where we do, the word ownership, I think, is is far too political. Um, It implies a relationship, well, first of all, it implies an economic relationship, but then also some transactional type of thing. Instead of recognizing that we have a covenantal relationship with God, which is not primarily transactional, but it is also a very intimate relationship, we are God's people. And he is our God. As God fills us with a sense of his presence and his relationship with him, we need to recognize that God isn't simply out there. That when we pray, we're not praying to someone who is distant from us. He is my God. I am his child. I belong to him and he belongs to me. It is an amazing thought. I've mentioned this before, but I find it very striking particularly in Psalm 46. I don't know why that always gets me when I read it, because we sang the hymn today, The God of Abraham Praise, and at the end, Hail Abraham's God and Mine. But in Psalm 46, um, it's not the only place, certainly, but God allows himself to be known as the God of Jacob. Now, if you know the story of Jacob at all, you might advise God to perhaps choose a different reference point. Um, To be known as the God of Jacob, you might want to pick somebody better. But God says, I am his God. He belongs to me. We are God's people and he is our God. This is the reality of the new covenant. God is your God and you are his child. Also tied in with this, as God is working our lives, is the knowledge of God. If you go to chapter 31 here in Jeremiah, probably the page before, in Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse number 31, we have another prophetic passage of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob, of Judah. By the way, if this is sounding familiar, this is what the author of Hebrews was quoting in Hebrews 8. 
It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their, their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. One of the things mentioned here with regard to the new covenant is that God will impart a true and inward knowledge of who he is. People will know who God is. Um, now, the people of Israel had seen demonstrations of God's power when he brought Egypt or Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus, they saw great things, but they were ignorant of who he was. No sooner had God delivered them out of Egypt than they began to complain to Moses and say, listen, God brought us out of Egypt so he could kill us. The example has been used. Can you imagine if your father said to you, and I, I think no matter how good or bad your relationship with your father it would apply that your father says listen let's get in the car and drive off let's, let's just go somewhere and go for a drive and so you get in the child or in the, as a child you get in the car you buckle up and then do you turn to your father and say dad are you going to drive us off a cliff and kill us well no you know your dad you, you know your dad's not going to do that so Israel saw what God did for them, but they didn't know who he was. So their first thought is, oh, God brought us out here because he wants to kill us. It's easier to kill us all out here in the desert than it was back in Egypt. They did not know who he was. But in the new covenant, in the new covenant, by God's grace, we know who he is. It brings with it a knowing of God. But there is more. It is the last line of that verse there is forgiveness. At the end of the passage I just mentioned, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Included in the blessings of the new covenant is a full and final forgiveness of sins. Our sins are washed away. And this is tied to the fear of the Lord. In Psalm 130, and Titus spoke on this last October, we find the two truths tied together. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. The psalmist, as he writes, is in a state of despondency. He is in a spiritual condition that he describes as the depths. Out of the depths he cries to God. And we are given an indication of what these depths are in verse number 3. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Um, implying that the psalmist could not stand and indeed was in the depths because he had a profound conviction of sin and he realized if in fact God dealt with him according to his sin, he was in serious trouble. The solution is found in the fourth verse. But with you there is forgiveness. This is the psalmist's only hope, that God will forgive him. And then he says, therefore you are feared. 
What can this mean? Because if the psalmist had read, with you there is justice, therefore you are feared, that we would get. We would totally get that. If God was a God of justice, if he gave us what we deserved, there would be no hope for us. So how does the discovery of the forgiveness that God gives us bring about the fear of God? Well, by God's grace, we have more insight than the psalmist because we have lived after the fact of the coming of Jesus into the world. First of all, we see that the display of God's character is displayed in giving us forgiveness. Forgiveness is not, don't worry about it, it's no big thing. That is not forgiveness. That is not forgiveness at all. I mentioned this last Sunday. Is there something that we can meditate on that will help us have a correct vision of God's character, that will keep his character front and center in our thinking. And there is, and it is the cross of Jesus Christ. Most of us, when we think of the cross, we think of God's great love and his mercy. And it is absolutely true. But at the same time, it is a clear picture, the clearest picture of God's justice and God's wrath. If forgiveness were no big deal, if God would simply say, don't worry about it. It's no big thing. Then Jesus would not have had to die on the cross. Sin is such a terrible thing and God's justice has to be satisfied so much so that Jesus had to be put to death on the cross. I read this last week. One pastor put it this way. What a display of inflexible justice it is when God spares not his own son but brings on him the full brunt of his wrath against sin. What a display of spotless holiness. God is so holy that he will turn his back on his only begotten, the one of whom he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The fear of the Lord should come to us when it comes to the matter of forgiveness. Because it is in forgiveness that God's justice, his holiness is seen And it required the death of his son. It required the death of his son. What has been given to us so graciously required the slaughter of God's own son. Required that someone stand in our place. And so we begin to have a sense that the character of God should lead us to the fear of the Lord. But I don't don't want to leave this here and have you forget that the love of God is displayed in the cross as well. Paul wrote in Romans 5, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I would suggest to you that when we take forgiveness lightly, the fear of the Lord is not present. Or if it is, it's, it's quite subdued. It is when we have a profound awareness of what God has done that there should be reverence and awe and veneration, the fear of the Lord at what he has done to secure our forgiveness. And the second thing that comes from this is peace with God. Here you might imagine I've just muddied the waters that have begun to clear for a moment. But consider 
after all that God has done for us, should we not, in fact, reverence him with love and submission? He has showered his mercy on the undeserving. He has extended forgiveness to sinners. He has brought us out of a state of terror, if you wish, the terror of sin, into a condition of reverential fear. Paul wrote to the Romans, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship by which we, call, we cry, Abba, Father. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 33, But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. There are dangers that we need to be aware of. We might, in fact, try to provoke in ourselves or in others the fear of the Lord on some basis other than forgiveness. For us in the new covenant, we are to have the fear of the Lord because we have been forgiven. But if, in fact, we go in a different direction, then I think we are, we're on dangerous ground. We're on thin ice. Or if, in fact, we promise forgiveness in a way that does not involve the fear of the Lord. That is, we want people to have forgiveness, but hey, don't worry about fearing God. Or we profess that we've been forgiven and there is no fear of the Lord. What we find in Scripture is, with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. As I said at the beginning of the sermon, I think we may question and even resent the fact that we have to have the fear of the Lord. In some ways it seems somewhat beneath God. For me, the picture that always comes to mind is of a Monty Python film in which God is a caricature. Um, and, and for me to spend this time saying we need to have the fear of the Lord, it, it just seems very un-American. Certainly not very modern. It seems somewhat primitive. What's the problem? Why do we struggle? Why do we chafe against this notion of the fear of the Lord? I think part of it is that we have failed to tie together the notions, the ideas of forgiveness and fear. Because that doesn't make sense. We would be scared of someone who would be just, who would enact justice. But someone who forgives us, why would we be afraid of such a person? And so I think the struggle for us is to connect forgiveness and the fear of the Lord. But we need to do that. One of the cries of the Reformation, and there were a number of them, was the Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator totus totus. In English, simultaneously justified and sinner. Totally justified and totally sinner. We are at the same time sinners and forgiven. One pastor put it this way. The gospel tells me that I am far worse, more flawed and more sinful than I imagine. And yet simultaneously, I am more loved and accepted by God than I ever dared to hope. And it is, I think, this realization that I am a worse sinner than I could ever imagine. And yet I have been given God's love in ways that go beyond my comprehension. 
That, I think, is when we begin to experience the fear of the Lord. It is a realization of God's grace and God's forgiveness that should provoke in us a spirit of reverence and respect and indeed worship, which is why we are here today. One of the blessings of the new covenant is the fear of the Lord. We are the people of the new covenant. We affirm this every Sunday. But as God works in our lives, we need to come to the recognition and realization that we are to have the fear of the Lord. God has forgiven us. We are to worship him. We are to reverence him. We are to have the fear of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, when we begin to look at Scripture and and look at these matters, the fear of the Lord and forgiveness, I think slowly or perhaps suddenly an awareness comes on us that we just think differently than you do. That we could understand being afraid of you, having fear if you were purely a God of justice. But to have the fear of the Lord of one who forgives us, at some level it doesn't make sense to us. I thank you that you have not left us to our own devices. Paul doesn't simply tell us to work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling. But you are in fact with us, working in us and through us, in our minds, our affections, our wills, in a way that we cannot fully understand. I do ask for us as individuals, but as this congregation, you would work by your spirit in our lives and cause us to see the place of the fear of the Lord. And may we, by your grace, have that fear. I think for many, we have forgotten or taken for granted the forgiveness of sins. We, we see it as simply erasing the, the chalkboard or an ollie ollie income free. We don't recognize the profound price that had to be paid. By your spirit, may we think on these things in the days to come. And as people of the new covenant, may we be marked by the fear of the Lord. Thank you for forgiving us our sins. We thank you that Jesus was willing to pay the price that we might have this forgiveness. Now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. May we have a sense of your presence with us every moment in the coming week. We pray for Mike as he's running, coming near the end of the race, that you would give him strength and keep him safe. Watch over each one of us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.